Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to History of College Football Podcast. I am Jay Abramson, and I will take you down a gridiron memory lane. The national champions, the teams, the rivalries, the conferences, the Heisman winners, the rankings. Today, we are lucky to have a very special guest, Dr. Clayton Truder, author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Dr. Truder is a historian and a freelance writer, and he may be found on Twitter at Clayton Truder. That's at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. It is indeed an honor to have you on my podcast. First, tell me, you're a freelance writer, you're a professor. Talk to me a little bit about your writing career. In many ways, my writing career is an extension of being a historian. I'm, I'm a history professor at Norwich University. On the side, I write a lot about, about a lot of different topics. I, I write a number of book reviews uh, in venues such as American History Magazine, Publishers Weekly. Um, my main area of focus, whenever possible, is sports history. I like to tie what's happening in sports, particularly in the 1960s and 1970s. Those are my heroes of greatest interest into what's happening more broadly in the culture, socially, politically, economically, and the like. Um, and my, my freelance writing is in many ways an extension of that, whether it's book reviews or in the past year, I've done a lot more freelance pieces for city and regional magazines. Uh, I've done pieces for uh, publications around the country. They're typically features about athletes who are from a particular city trying to tell their story and situate it within their time and the place in which they live. So in many ways, it's an extension of what, of, uh, of what I do as a professor. Uh, this is my first book. I'm working on a second book on college basketball in a, you know, in a bit different vein. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a historian first and, and, and a writer is in my mind an extension of, of that, uh, that experience. Fantastic. And your concentration on the 60s and 70s, that's the time period I grew up in. Very good. Well, it's, now, for me, I'm, I'm a guy, I mean, I'm 39 years old. It's a little bit before my time. There's a certain familiarity. It seems like a somewhat familiar world, but at the same time, it's different than what I experienced. So it's, it's, it's definitely like the world of my parents. And, and I find that interesting talking with them about that and talking with people of that uh, generation about it. So I, I find it interesting looking back at something that seems a little bit familiar, but also beyond the pale of my own life is what I've always enjoyed about it as a time period. Oh, I can see that. I can see that. Now you have a new book. Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta, and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Before we get into the book's details, talk to me a little bit. What motivated you to write the book? Well, it's a product of my doctoral dissertation. I, I'm a modern U.S. cultural historian, and the subject I wanted to tackle was the expansion of pro sports in the second half of the 20th century. I was essentially looking for a city to serve as a case study for this. I, I did a fair amount with Phoenix, actually looking into the experiences in Phoenix. I looked into St. Louis. I looked into Cleveland because I was interested in both sides of the equation, cities that were trying to lure teams as well as cities that were trying to fight to keep the teams they had. I ended up settling in on Atlanta as being my, my case study for my dissertation because it's the city, one of the first cities that made it a matter of public policy to try to lure in pro sports. 
they had a mayor named Ivan Allen in the 1960s who, who explicitly, when he was running for mayor, said, I want to make Atlanta a major league city. There had been cities before that, had, well, obviously Los Angeles and, and San Francisco had lured teams in before, but, but Atlanta makes it a matter of public policy. And I was interested in what would happen in the city that made that such a focus of its uh, civic efforts. So Atlanta became the subject of my dissertation, Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports, uh, whether it was trying to lure teams from other cities, whether it was trying to get expansion teams, then also the public response to them that obviously civic elites thought this was something important to the community. How did people who actually lived in Atlanta, whether they were longtime residents, many of whom were huge college football fans of Georgia Tech, Georgia City's historically black colleges, they all had very intense fan bases. How do these people respond to the new teams coming to the city, as well as the many transplants from, from around the country who ended up in Atlanta? So that's essentially my story. It's a story of arrival and then the response uh, to Atlanta in my dissertation, and that ends up becoming the basis for the book. Very good. So tell us a little bit about the book. The book is essentially, I see it as an origin story for the modern sports business. In many ways, what happens in the second half of the 20th century in sports is an expansion of teams from the north, from the Midwest, to the south and west of the country, and also to some extent to Canada. And in many ways, it's a product of public subsidies for pro sports. The cities are all of a sudden willing to spend money to try to lure in big league teams, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Phoenix, whether it's Los Angeles, whether it's Houston. And Atlanta is really the first city that makes this a matter of civic significance, that it's something the whole business community, the political community are pushing on behalf of this. Uh, and it's the story of how Atlanta built two uh, buildings built the Atlanta Stadium, which later became known as Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, as well as the Omni Arena. And as a result of fu funding two buildings in the 1960s and 1970s, Atlanta is able to bring in the, the Braves in Major League Baseball, the Falcons in the National Football League, the, the Flames in the National Hockey League, and the, uh, and the Hawks in the National Basketball Association. In a, six years, basically, they have teams in all four leagues. And it's an awful lot on their plate awfully quickly. And that's the story. In many ways, it's a cautionary tale. Um, it's not really a criticism of the civic leader. I mean, some people who I've talked to about it think I really have it in for the civic leadership or something there. Not at all. Nobody had ever experienced this before. No city had ever really tried to do this. They were kind of out on an island themselves trying this as, a, as an approach to get big league sports. So in many ways, I think a lot of other cities learned to some extent from Atlanta's experience and how to approach luring teams, how to approach subsidizing them, uh, how to approach trying to build fan bases for their teams. Um, a big part of the story is actually college football, because before Atlanta had pro sports, it had a very robust existing sporting culture, whether it was golf, whether it was auto racing, whether it was professional wrestling, which was wildly popular down there, whether it was most significantly, though, college football. Georgia Tech had an, an incredibly intense fan base. Georgia had a building fan base, which only grew and grew in the 1960s and 1970s. And all of these existing sporting cultures proved a very worthy adversary for the big leagues in Atlanta. And they, the big leagues do not displace these other sporting events in the area. Um, there's a whole chapter I have in my book about a weekend in September 1969 when the Braves had won their division and had two games against the Mets there. In, in Atlanta Stadium. Both games drew over 45,000 people, but those were only the fourth and fifth best attended sporting events in the Atlanta area that weekend. Mm. Because you had the Falcons game, which had drawn over 50,000 people. You had the Georgia Tech game, which drew 52,000 people. 
And then just down the road in Athens, you had the Georgia game drawing close to 65,000 people. So even at big leagues, big league baseball's most showcased moment, it is a lesser activity in the region than college football was. Um, so in many ways, the book is a story of this, the difficulty of pro sports teams in Atlanta to find a foothold in a community that had its own existing sporting culture, as well as many transplants who maintained loyalty to the teams from where they originally resided. Well, that sounds terribly interesting. Georgia Tech, what a rich, significant history. We had them back on episode four. I mean, I hit them almost immediately because they're so significant in the history of college football. When did the book come out? Where can we get this book? Well, the book doesn't actually come out until early 2022. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes Noble, all your standard retailers. I, I think there are ways to get it from independent retailers. I'm just sort of getting a handle on the whole business side of doing a book now, and I'll certainly encourage independent book retailers when I when I learn more about it, but all your standard book sites have it. It's a book published by the University of Nebraska Press, which does many uh, sports history related titles. University of Nebraska Press, very, very good. Are you game for a few purely fun questions, sir? Oh, you know it, can't wait. <laughs> we'll start in Georgia. What was the greatest Georgia Bulldog team in college football history? Boy, that 1980 team is pretty tough to beat with Herschel Walker in his freshman year and Buck Ballou at quarterback, a very robust defense that only gave up about 10 points a game. Uh, I think what I particularly like about that team is not only their success in that year and ending up winning against Notre Dame in the bowl game and winning the national title, but in many ways, it's the culmination of what Vince, Vince Dooley built up at Georgia over the previous decade and a half, that they served as one of the few worthy rivals to Bear Bryant's Alabama teams during that era. And finally, they put themselves in a position to win the national title in 1980. So I think in many ways, it reflects what's happening in Georgia more broadly in the time period. Georgia goes from a team that has a, a stadium of 45,000 people in the early 1960s to one that has one of the handful of largest stadiums in college football at the early 1980s. But as the state grew, as it, in part because of the growth of Atlanta, and many people from the Atlanta area ending up at UGA, Georgia ends up becoming a major college football program, both because of what's happening on the field and what's happening off the field in the region, too. So in many ways, in some ways, I only talk about it briefly in my book, but that, that championship team kind of ties a bow on the era for what's happening in athletics in the state. Great answer. What was the greatest Georgia Tech Yellow Jacket team in college football history, sir? It's probably a John Heisman team I never saw, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, at least from my own from my own memory, I have very fond recollections of that 1990 Georgia Tech team, specifically, which, which wins. I think they should have won an outright national title. I've always felt like that, that Colorado team was incredibly overrated. They they loved, Jeff George's Illinois team pounded on them. They had the fifth down game against Missouri. They had the phantom clip call with Rocket Ishmael. Boy, did they get lucky to get a share of the national title. Uh, that Georgia Tech team had the tie against, I believe it was Duke, uh, midway through the season. Then they go on the road. They beat Virginia on national television. I have a firm recollection of it because it was on my father's birthday. And we were <laughs> going to go out to dinner. And I kept saying, Dad, Dad, you got to wait to see what's going to happen. I really had no particular association. with. I grew up in Vermont. I had no association with Georgia Tech whatsoever. But we had to watch the end of this game to see if the number one Virginia was going to get knocked off. And in many ways, that, that ends up being the build to the national title for that team. They end up going to the Citrus Bowl, playing a Nebraska team that a lot of people thought was going to uh, was really going to show this kind of upstart ACC team what was up. But uh, they really took it to them and got themselves a share of the national title. And I think they should have been the outright national champion that year. Another phenomenal answer. 
Who is your favorite player in college football history? Well, I mentioned him a minute ago, Rocket Ismail. I think, I mean, that man, the collision of Rocket Ismail's career and Sports Center coming around, that guy was just made for quick clips of him running back punts <laughs> and kickoffs and everything. Uh, I was also, 1988 was the first year when I was watching a lot of college football, so I loved, it was his sophomore year. No, no, it was his freshman year, freshman year. Uh, and he was already emerging as a big star, so I really enjoyed uh, you know, seeing all of his big plays, it seemed like every single game he had one, even though Holtz would only get him the ball like eight or nine times, which I don't totally understand. But uh, yeah, he was, to me, the first really exciting college player that's in my memory. Obviously, I've gone back and watched a lot of college football before that. But since I was a little boy and was watching this happen live, it was such a big deal to me at the time. <laughs> Most memorable play in college football history. The Orange Bowl, 1984, going for two, Tom Osborne. I really dislike the elimination of the tie in college football because to me, one of the most interesting aspects of the game are all the strategic elements. And I think we lose a lot of it by getting rid of the tie. In many ways, I think it's very revealing of a person's personality, their character, how they approach these kind of moments. And Osborne decided to go for two to try to win the outright national title. I don't know if it's the right decision, but it certainly was an interesting and thought-provoking decision he made. Uh, you see Miami getting catapulted to being what Miami becomes as a program as a result of this game. You kind of see the collision of the old and the new in college football as a result of that. Um, and and I, I think I think just that two failed two-point conversion with Turner Gill throwing the incomplete pass is, to me, the most memorable, memorable play. Oh, I, I can certainly see that. Greatest game in college football history. I want to say that 10 to 10 Michigan State Notre Dame game, but I've really only seen documentaries of it to be fair. I've never sat down and watched the whole thing. I, I, I'm going to do that tonight, I think, just so I can have a, a more honest answer on that question at any time I talk about it in the future. Um, that 10 to 9 Colorado Notre Dame Fiesta Bowl was a great game. I think what I particularly liked about it was that even though it was going to be a school night, my mom let me stay up to watch it. So I got to stay up to like 1130 at night to watch the end of that game. Was which I, I love low scoring games. I think they're more strategically interesting. And I, you know, the, the phantom cliff call at the end, I thought was, was a really, uh, was really interesting game. In the first year of overtime, I love that Nebraska Missouri game with the, you know, the overtime one with the, I can't even think of the guy who made the, the, the diving catch to save the undefeated season for Nebraska there. That was fantastic. Um, I mean, I've gone back and I went to grad school at Boston College. I've gone back and watched the D.C. Miami 84 game. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, I love the Alabama Notre Dame Sugar Bowl in 73. Probably rattle off. 50, there's, I probably have like 50 favorite games, but uh, <laughs> we all do. But that is a wonderful collection. Greatest season in college football history. I really like that 1990 season because there were so many teams vying for the national title that year there. I mean, there was that Georgia tech team, there was Colorado, there was Miami, there was Notre Dame. There was, there was another undefeated team in the mix too, that I thought was, was, was interesting as well. I really like the 92 season as well. I like Miami was sort of kind of crowned early on Toretta winning the Heisman right. trophy and everything. And that Alabama kind of, the, I feel like that Stallings Alabama team is kind of forgotten relative to what they should be because they just went out and they absolutely eviscerated Miami in the Sugar Bowl. And I don't think anybody really saw that. I mean, probably people in Alabama did as, as a 11 year old in Vermont, I didn't see it coming. I guess I was very surprised <laughs> by it, but uh, that, that 92 season really sticks out in my mind uh, as well. Um, in a historical sense, the, the seasons during world war two, I find interesting just the ability to keep it, you know, keep it going on. And obviously West Point dominated those, those seasons, but, 
I find them just interesting in the logistical sense that they were able to have college football those years. Um, and, and also as a result of COVID, the seasons 1918, 1919, where I'm sure you've seen the pictures like, you know, of all the fans wearing the masks in the stands and stuff like this in 1918 and 1919. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of echoes for today. Uh, I haven't read a ton about those years, but that's, I, I, that would certainly be of great interest to me as well. Yeah, 44-45 seasons were amazing. And Army put together two seasons in a row where they never even trailed, much less lost. I mean, it was just incredible. Biggest upset in college football history. I'm sure everybody says that Appalachian State-Michigan game. I mean, <laughs> it was an awfully good team. Uh, I have a very firm recollection of watching, I think it was in about 2008 or so, when North Dakota State beat Minnesota for the first time. And it was just when North Dakota State was coming on the national stage. It was a little bit after the Appalachian State upset. And Minnesota wasn't exactly, you know, uh, you know, a Bear Bryant Alabama team at that point, but they were like a bowl level kind of Big Ten team. And, and North Dakota State going on the road and beating Minnesota, I thought that was an incredibly big deal at the time. Um, even though I had really no connection to it, it just really struck me. And, and for me, it was kind of the coming out party for North Dakota State as being a big deal program. program. Oh, absolutely. I guess the grand finale, greatest team of all time, sir. One of those John Heisman, Georgia Tech teams, you know, you know beating Cumberland 222 to nothing and everything. But, man, I'm going to say that 92 Alabama team. I mean, they the whole defense got picked in the first round. They ran the ball well. Jay Barker, I think, was a very underrated quarterback, a very efficient quarterback. I think in the modern – he may not have had a cannon of an arm. I think in the modern game with a lot more short passing and more of a West Coast-oriented offense, I think he would have been a more highly regarded quarterback, probably more in the – more like some of the other Bama quarterbacks, uh, uh, you know, McCarron and the like. I think he would have been thought of as being more at that level. But those were fantastic teams. That SEC title game against Florida that, was, that went to overtime was very exciting and certainly that national title game as well. Uh, I also think that was a fun era with the Alabama Auburn thing where you have Terry Bowden down the road at Auburn and they had the year where they were, you know, on, on probation or whatever, and they went undefeated. I think it was in 93. So that was an interesting era when he's taking over for Pat Dye as well. Um, so I, I guess that would be my off the cuff answer. Oh, great answer. Well, thank you, Dr. Clayton Truder. It was an honor to have you as a guest. Again, oh, thanks I so much. This was great fun. Hope to uh, do it again sometime. I'm going to have to have you back on. That, again, Dr. Clayton Truder. He may be found on Twitter at Clayton Truder. That's at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. Thank you for listening to History of College Football. I am Jay Abramson. Join us every Tuesday and Saturday for a new episode. 